Welcome back to the Hemingway List, the best podcast ever. We're talking about Of Human Bondage, Chapter 2. Then we'll be reading Chapter 3. Oh, it's 1885. That was the first discussion prompt, and then the second one was more of just a question that popped into my head. Is Emma his sister? I didn't think she was, but then the word sister was in my head bouncing around. Did he have a sister? Or was it like someone was like a sister as in like a nun or something like that? I don't know. I just thought I'd clear that up by asking here. Um, Fix the Blue said, When she arrives, it says the nurse bent to kiss him, Philip. Is Emma the nurse, maybe? This whole interaction I thought was so sad. Aren't you going to ask how your mama is? She said at length. Oh, I forgot. How is mama? Now she was ready. Your mama is quite well and happy. Oh, I'm glad. Your mama's gone away. You won't ever see her again. Philip did not know what she meant. Why not? Your mama's in heaven. Philip was playing quite contently. Why upset the child unnecessarily? Surely there would be plenty of opportunity to t- explain to the boy what had happened to his mama. Also, I felt it was so cold of Emma to say his mama was well right before admitting she was dead. Another really strong chapter. We have barely met the characters, but I already feel so emotionally invested. Edit. Just listened to the podcast. Um... So back to spell check the heck out of this awkward, oh yeah, I'm a newbie. Um, (laughs) I don't usually point out people's typos, you know, I just kind of read them or correct correct them as I read, sorry. Um, But it was only because it was a funny typo that I pointed it out. Amazing Larry said, it did seem cruel what Emma did, Uh, but I think she was only trying to let him know that she is now in a better place, as they say. Maybe she thought that would be a comfort. Yeah, I thought she was trying to soften the blow a little bit by saying, she's fine, she's well, um, but she's gone forever. But wherever she is, she's okay, sort of thing. I think that's, I thought that's what she was going for, like, um, you know, don't worry, it's not worth thinking she's in pain or anything she's quite okay she's just in heaven <laughs> and maybe that was even their belief you know maybe she thought once you're in heaven everything's fine and it wasn't such a tragedy i don't know i don't know but but yeah no anyway my my uh, my take on it was she was just trying to make it less sad for him and why did she have to go and interrupt his play to to sort of tell him i think maybe she just had the task like it was a week later at this point. Maybe someone had to sort of say it and no one could figure out how. So it was just like no time like the present. Something like that. J.P. Guthrie said, I wonder where the narrative is going to go. Are we getting something like Nicholas Nickleby, David Copperfield, with a bit of a femme fatale? I've not read the blurb, preferring to go in blind. So all I have to go in is the first chapter and the cover art. Hmm, I love a Bildung's Roman, though. The cover art shows, looks like, um, that looks like the 20s or the 1910s or something. A very slick looking guy in a suit with a cigarette and a very suave looking lady in a long flowing dress and a feather in a big hat, diamond earrings and fancy gloves. Um, Looks like the 20s or something, very glitzy, glamorous. Um, So I'm assuming the book might start in... Uh, 1885 but we might move forward a little bit 
Swims to the moon, Fisher said. For those who might not know, like me, Bill Dung's Roman is a literary genre that focuses on the psychological moral growth of the protagonist from youth to adulthood coming of age, in which a character in which character change is important. Um, yeah, it's a coming of age book. Um, but we'd have to advance a bit in years for it to get to that. I don't really think it's going to be Bill Dung's Roman because just looking at that cover art, it looks like they're adults, not kind of teenagers. Um, Bill Dung's Roman is more like adolescence and teen years. Think like high school drama. That's or, or coming of age, you know, Stand By Me or, um, yeah, Stranger Things, <laughs> which is kind of a, uh, an homage to Stand By Me. Um, Catcher in the Rye, things like that. So like early adulthood or like learning what it is to be a grown up sort of thing that that kind of school of hard knocks i don't know um so like watching someone grow up from uh what is he five or whatever they said nine ten what did they say how old did they say he was a kid to being like 30 that's i don't i don't think of that necessarily as a bill dung's roman that's more like a life story uh Pemirden says morham knows how to tug at the heartstrings saddens me that Philip overheard the stranger say that his club foot caused his mother grief. Yeah, that was like the saddest moment almost. Him finding out that he was a, a, a grief to his mother. Uh, would Philip then feel responsible for causing his mother grief? Would he be ashamed of his foot? Those were different times. From my family's experience in the early 1900s, mental physical differences were a source of shame and not disgust. Um, Laura Wystitch says, definitely not his system. Uh, I'm sure it said somewhere that he's an only child. I think she's his nurse. Maybe someone was like a sister, as in like a, a nun. And that's why I had the word sister in my head. Or maybe I just imagined it. Um, but okay, he's, he, she's the nurse. Uh, not the midwife nurse, the child's nurse. Um, back then, kids were like raised by a kind of a nanny sort of thing and I think that's what she is I'm finding the perspective of the child very realistic I can't stand how people are treating him though it's not easy to tell someone that a person close to them has died but the way that was but that was pretty poor I also feel worse now that the doctor didn't let him stay with his mother in the bed for longer it seemed completely unnecessary I am Norwegian, says Anda. I only read the blurb of the plot on Wikipedia, which I've already forgotten, not the whole thing. I'm pretty much going into the book blind. Oh, that's good. Uh, it made me laugh hearing you pronounce Morkham. You said it correctly, but it still sounds like someone imitating a deaf person speaking. Morkham. Morkham. Right? Morkham. 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 It's a dumb name. M-A-U-G-H-A-M. Dumb. That's dumb. Uh, it's not me that's dumb or deaf in this case my first impression of Philip is that he's a normal boy with very natural reactions but it was the fact that the author remembers how a child feels and behaves so well that impressed me I think Emma is the nanny or servant here is a YouTube recording of different people pronouncing Somerset Morham oh good because that one that was linked last night was really hard to hear because it was like an old recording. Here we go. Let's have it. Let's put some volume on that. 
Somerset Moon. Moon. Somerset Moon. 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 Somerset Moon. 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 Somerset Moon. Moon. It says Moon. Somerset Moon. Moon. Stop saying it differently. Okay. Is this like a prank name? <laughs> they say it differently every time. Morham. Is it Morham or Morm? Somerset Morm. Well, that one just glitches at the end. Somerset Morm. So the girl says Morham and the guy says Morm. On a video teaching you how to pronounce it. Well, now I've bloody seen everything. All right. Sour Patch and Popcorn. Hey, that's a new name. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the subreddit. We read The Razor's Edge in high school, British Brit, Brit lit. Uh, I wasn't keeping up with the reading, so for a good few days, I thought my teacher was talking about the main character's mother whenever he said Morm, also a character in the book. <laughs> Morm. Morm. I hate it. I can't say it. I can't say it. It's a dumb name. It's for idiots. Um, Simply Productive says, I kept pronouncing it Morgm with a quiet GM throat sound at the end. What? Morgm. Morgm. And now I know I was wrong. Lol. Um, I agree that Morgm's port portrait of Philip rings true. As a child in, un in an uncertain, not entirely secure situation, Philip monitors adult expectations of him. He will have been glad to stay a little longer to be made much of, but felt they expected him to go. All right. <clears throat> I feel like I've had a stroke or something. Why can't I say that name? <laughs> it's going to bother me. Uh, okay, I'm banning the use of the name in this discussion for the rest of the book. Um, I'll be instantly blocking anyone who writes the name and therefore makes me need to say it. And uh, <laughs> um, those are the rules now. Let's read chapter three. Chapter three goes like this. <clears throat> when they reached the house Mrs. Carey had died in, it was in a dreary, respectable street between Notting Hill Gate and High Street, Kensington. Emma led Philip into the drawing room his uncle was writing letters of thanks for the wreaths which had been sent. One of them, which had arrived too late for the funeral, lay in its cardboard box on the hall table. Here's Master Philip, said Emma. Mr. Carey stood up slowly and shook hands with the little boy. Then on second thoughts he bent down and kissed his forehead. He was a man of somewhat less than average height, inclined to corpulence with his hair, worn long, arranged over the scalp so as to conceal his baldness. He was clean-shaven, his features were regular, and it was possible to imagine that in his youth he had been good-looking, on which, on his watch-chain, he wore a gold cross. "'You're going to live with me now, Philip,' said Mr. Carey. "'Shall you like that?' Two years before, Philip had been sent down to stay at a vicarage after an attack of <clears throat> chicken-pox, but there remained with him a recollection of an attic and a large garden rather than of his uncle and aunt." Yes, you must look upon me and your Aunt Louisa as your father and mother. The child's mouth trembled a little. He reddened, but did not answer. Your dear mother left you in my charge. Mr. Carey had not great ease in expressing himself. 
When the news came that his sister-in-law was dying, he set off at once for London, but on the way thought of nothing but the <clears throat> disturbance in his life. That would be caused if her death forced him. But thought of nothing but the disturbance in his life that would be caused if her death forced him to undertake the care of her son. He was well over fifty, and his wife, to whom he had been married for thirty years, was childless. He did not look forward with any pleasure to the presence of a small boy who might be noisy and rough. He had never much liked his sister-in-law. "'I'm going to take you down to Black Stable tomorrow,' he said. "'With Emma?' The child put his hand in hers, and she pressed it. "'I'm afraid Emma must go away,' said Mr. Carey. "'But I want Emma to come with me.' Philip began to cry, and the nurse could not help crying too. Mr. Carey looked at them helplessly. "'I think you'd better leave me alone with Master Philip for a moment.' "'Very good, sir.' Though Philip clung to her, she released herself gently. Mr. Carey took the boy on his knee and put his arm around him. You mustn't cry, he said. You're too old to have a nurse now. We must see about sending you to school. I want Emma to come with me, the child repeated. It costs too much money, Philip. Your father didn't leave very much, and I don't know what's become of it. You must look at every penny you spend. Mr. Carey had called the day before on the family solicitor. Philip's father was a surgeon in good practice and his hospital appointments suggested an established position, so that it was a surprise on his sudden death from blood poisoning to find that he had left his widow little more than his life's insurance and what could be got for the lease of their house in Bruton Street. This was six months ago, and Mrs. Carey, already in delicate health, finding herself with child, had lost her head and accepted for the lease the first offer that was made. She stored her furniture, and at a rent which the parson thought outrageous, took a furnished house for a year so that she might suffer from no inconvenience till her child was born. But she had never been used to the management of money and was unable to adapt her expenditure to her altered circumstances. The little she had slipped through her fingers in one way and another, so that now, when all expenses were paid, not much more than £2,000 remained to support the boy till he was able to earn his own living. It was impossible to explain all this to Philip, and he was sobbing still. "'You'd better go to Emma,' Mr Carey said, feeling that she could console the child better than anyone. Without a word, Philip slipped off his uncle's knee, but Mr Carey stopped him. You must go tomorrow because on Saturday I've got to prepare my sermon and you must tell Emma to get your things ready today. You can bring all your toys and if you want anything to remember your father and mother by you can take one thing for each of them. Everything else is going to be sold. The boy slipped out of the room. Mr Carey was unused to work and he turned to his correspondence with resentment. On one side of the desk was a bundle of bills and these filled him with irritation one especially seemed pre preposterous. Immediately after Mrs. Carey's death, Emma had ordered from the florist masses of white flowers for the room in which the dead woman lay. It was sheer waste of money. Emma took far too much upon herself. Even if there had been no financial necessity, he would have dismissed her. But Philip went with her, went to her, and hid his face in her bosom, and wept as though his heart would break and she, feeling that he was almost her own son, she had taken him when he was a month old, consoled him with soft words, 
She promised that she would come and see him sometimes and that she would never forget him, and she told him about the country he was going to and about her own home in Devonshire. Her father kept a turnpike on the high road that led to Exeter, and there were pigs in the sty and there was a cow, and the cow had just had a calf. Till Philip forgot his tears and grew excited at the thought of his approaching journey, presently she put him down, for there was much to be done, and he helped her to lay out his clothes on the bed. She sent him into the nursery to gather up his toys, and in a little while he was playing happily. But at last he grew tired of being alone and went back to the bedroom, in which Emma was now putting his things into a big tin box. He remembered that that he remembered then that his uncle had said he might take something to remember his mo- father, fa- father and mother by. He told Emma and asked her what he should take. You'd better go into the drawing room and see what you fancy. Uncle William's there. Never mind that. They're your own things now. Philip went downstairs slowly and found the door open. Mr. Carey had left the room. Philip walked around slowly. They had been in the house so short a time that there was little in it that had a particular interest to him. It was a stranger's room, and Philip saw nothing that struck his fancy, but he knew which were his mother's things and which belonged to the landlord, and presently fixed on a little clock that he had once heard his mother say she liked. With this he walked again rather disconsolately upstairs. Outside the door of his mother's bedroom, he stopped and listened. Though no one had told him not to go in, he had a feeling that it would be wrong to do so. He was a little frightened, and his heart beat uncomfortably. But at the same time, something impelled him to turn the handle. He turned it very gently, as if to prevent anyone within from hearing, and then slowly pushed the door open. He stood on the threshold for a moment before he had the courage to enter. He was not frightened now, but it seemed strange. He closed the door behind him. The blinds were drawn, and the room, in the cold light of a January afternoon, was dark. On the dressing table were Mrs. Carey's brushes and the hand mirror. In a little tray were hairpins. There was a photograph of himself in the chimney piece and one of his father. He had often been in the room when his mother was not in it, but now it seemed different. There was something curious in the look of the chairs. The bed was made as though someone were going to sleep in it that night, and in a case on the pillow was a nightdress. Philip opened a large cupboard filled with dresses and, stepping in, took as many of them as he could in his arms, and buried his face in them. They smelt of the scent his mother used. Then he pulled open the drawers, filled with his mother's things, and looked at them. There were lavender bags among the linen, and their scent was fresh and pleasant. The strangeness of the room left it, and it seemed to him that his mother had just gone out for a walk. She would be in presently, and would come upstairs to the nursery, to have nursery tea with him, and he seemed to feel her kiss on his lips. It was not true that he would never see her again. It was not true simply because it was impossible. He climbed up on the bed and put his head on the pillow. He lay there quite still. All right, there we go. Another chapter down. Bloody hell, what is this book? Why is it so bloody sad? (laughs) Have your say over at the subreddit. Thanks very much for listening and I'll see you tomorrow.